it at Exodus 33. Turn in your Bibles, open up there. So glad to see you all here tonight. You picked a good one. While you all are turning to Exodus 33, I'm going to begin in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's frame our study tonight. Hebrews chapter 12, the Hebrew pastor is quoting from Solomon, who is writing to his son or his sons. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And so the quote goes, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. By the way, illegitimate children in the Greek is nothos. And it is as, it is a, as offensive a word in the Greek as it is in the English. I'll just put it to you that way. To be an illegitimate child. If you have not experienced, and if we don't experience the discipline of God, then what kind of children really are we, he says. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he for good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. As the dust of the fragments of the shattered tablets settled on the ground, as the dusty paste of the melted gold calf choked their throats and ached their bellies, even as an unspecified plague of the Lord left the rebellious rioters in chastened silence, the Lord spoke to Moses, Exodus 33, verse 1, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst. Because you're an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning. And none of them put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, you are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment? I would destroy you. Now therefore, put off your ornaments from you that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb, and the implication is from that day forward. These few verses overflow with a father's broken heart. I read and reread them early in the week, and I thought, I have been there. I have been there. I've said similar things to my kids. You're just being rebellious. 
I've said things like, if I stay in your presence for five more minutes, I'm going to destroy you. <laughs> I told Anna Marie one time, I'm going to send you into next week. And she's like, really? <laughs> and I've had that feeling, you know. Therefore, put off your ornaments, verse 5, from you so that I may know what I shall do with you. What parent hasn't said, I got to go and think about this. I'm so mad right now, I don't even know what to do. Or I'm gonna, there will be a punishment, but I got to go think this one through. I got to pray about this, because if I punish you the way I feel right now, <laughs> it won't be next week. It'll be next year that I knock you into, you know? I, being a parent is not easy. But I sense this immediately. It's just, this, this is a father's heart. He is brokenhearted over their defiance. He's brokenhearted over his punishment of them. Don't think for a moment that God enjoyed punishing Israel. No parent enjoys punishing their children. That's not the fun stuff. That's not the good stuff. God is a father's heart. He loved them. And so we see in these few verses three things just to jot down if you'd like to. We see first a confirmed determination. God would fulfill his promised land promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, I'm gonna, I promised them, so this is going to happen. Your descendants will come back into the land. I will drive out the inhabitants before you. And I'm going to send my angel with you. I'm just not going myself. A confirmed determination. God had determined long before these people to fulfill his promise. And so even when we are faithless, he becomes or he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So he confirms that determination to send the people to the land but he says, but I'm not going to go. I'll send my angel. We know the angel, by the way. The malach is the word, the word that is never used of angels as in cherubim or seraphim or angels in the Hebrew scriptures. Malach meaning my messenger, the angel who went along. If you look back at chapter 32, verse 34, but go now, lead my people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sins. My angel will go. I'm sending him. This is Jesus B.C. <laughs> Think about that. Jesus before Christ, B.C. It's, it's Jesus before Christ. Not Jesus as we know him, not named Jesus because he would be given the name Jesus at his birth, right? But this is the visible representation of the invisible God. That's Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, who is present, pre-incarnate. I think you're stretching it, Rick. Hey, 1 Corinthians 10, 4, talk to Paul about it. He said, a spiritual rock followed them, and the rock was Christ. I'm going to send my angel. I'll send my malach. I'm going to do what I said. I'm just not going with you, says the Father. And so we come to the second thing to note, and that is a comprehensive discipline. A comprehensive discipline. And I don't mean a discipline uh, that is full force. I mean a discipline that is comprehensible. That is to say, he, he says, I will not go up in your midst. I might destroy you on the way. And he's disciplining them. I'll put it this way. This is a comprehensive discipline so that they might have a disciplined comprehension. 
so that they could understand more, again, of who God is. They needed to know something of the nature of God. I can't go with you because if I do, I will wipe you out. Not because God is heavy-handed or mean-spirited or a, a punishing God, but because they are so sinful and rebellious and he is so perfect that for him to be present would waylay them. For him to be in their midst, they needed to comprehend this is not just, oh, dad will get over it. Oh, oh the father, it's not that big a deal. Yeah, we kind of blew it, but it's okay, it'll blow over. This is a holy, righteous God. And you know what? If you want God in your midst, you've got to be sure that you have a comprehensive discipline as well. That we comprehend the discipline of the Lord. That's why I started in Hebrews chapter 12. He does discipline us. He's doing it right now. By the way, in the church, in this season, let judgment begin with the household of God, the Bible tells us. And this household, not just this one, but the household of God worldwide is being disciplined right now in ways we don't even yet fully comprehend and understand. But we're in a season of discipline. I am feeling disciplined like I've never been disciplined before. Praise God, it's a good thing. Because I know where it's coming from. I know who he is. We have something of his grace and his love. We know we have a loving father. And to casually devalue his holiness because we know he's loving, because we know he's gracious and compassionate, to devalue his holiness, it's not going to change him, but it will diminish my faith. It will lessen my comprehension of the Lord. Job knew it, experienced it. David knew it, Solomon knew it. They all three knew it. In fact, they all wrote, they all said the same thing. Job, I believe, first, followed by David, and then followed by Solomon. They all said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job 28, 28, Psalm 110, 111, verse 10, Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I know we've recently talked about the fear of the Lord, but here we are again, and what the Lord is doing as a loving father is teaching the fear of the Lord to the people of Israel. If I go with you, you will be destroyed. You need to learn to fear me. Understand that what we learn about God and about his nature is not to satisfy something in him. It's to teach something to us. That as I fear the Lord, it changes me. As I worship the Lord, it's not because God is like, I need to be worshiped. It's because he knows that when we worship him, it makes us right. And when we fear him in a godly, biblical, reverent fear, it's good. It teaches us discipline. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, the prophet said of the Messiah, of Jesus, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Listen, that's all in the context of him delighting in the fear of the Lord. That is, the, the, the reverence and fear of the Lord was first and foremost for Jesus in his human state and therefore he did everything right. Now you might say, well, Jesus would have done everything right anyway. I understand that. But he showed us as a human being how you walk right as a human being is fearing the Lord. You fear the Lord, you're going to... We talked about this Sunday, didn't we? Better to fear the Lord than to fear man. 
And if I fear the Lord, then I'm going to do what he desires for me to do, even when everyone else is opposed. And that's good. Isaiah 33, verse 6, also speaking of Jesus, says he will be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his, or it might be the fear of the Lord is this treasure. The fear of the Lord is this treasure. What treasure? Stability, salvation, wisdom, knowledge. This is all part and parcel connected to, tied with, disciplined by the fear of the Lord. I mentioned this at the outset because my greatest concern for the church right now, the Laodicean people's rights mentality that I see in our world today it's affecting some manifestations of the last day's church. Not every church, not every fellowship, and not every Christian. But there is, the Bible tells us in the, in the seven letters, but the last four letters in the, in the Revelation, uh, chapters two and three, in the last four letters, we know of four churches written to that are last day's churches. And I've talked about that recently as well. Laodicea is one of them, which means Laodicea, that mentality is in the world, in the church today. So it's not a surprise. But some manifestations of this last day's church are being affected by this. The less we fear the Lord, listen, get this, the less we fear the Lord, the more our influence in this world will diminish. That is the less impact we will have on lost people. See, we got it wrong back in the 80s and the 90s. We thought if we just water everything down, if we become seeker-sensitive, if we just lighten the message, if we become more like the world, if we take down the crosses and if we take our church buildings and make them look more like office buildings and if we just try to appeal to the masses in the way that they live and the things that they do, well, that'll, that'll do it. And we forgot the fear of the Lord and the holiness of God, which is what distinguishes us from the world. That relationship, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, says the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Note that, and when you study through Acts, that's what we see, that the first century church increased in the fear of the Lord. In fact, there's even a verse that says after the Ananias and Sapphira incident, Fear gripped them all. <laughs> the fear of the Lord. And yet the church grew massively because he is worth fearing. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men that I do it his way and I revere his word and, and his standard. I do his thing and lost people get saved. I do my thing, doesn't work out so well. Well, the people learned this, that, that God was not going to go with them, and they sank into sorrow. Oh, he confirmed his determination to send them to the land. He gives them now a comprehensive discipline, and I love that we have this, almost this pause at the beginning of chapter 33 to see what's on God's heart, that he's disciplining them, and he's holding out that he may not go, and they sink into sorrow. That's a good sign. That's a really good sign, verse 4. They heard this sad word and went into mourning. Let me tell you something. If you can still mourn your sin, you're in good shape. 
The moment we stop being sad over our rebellion, the moment we give up mourning for riding against Jesus, we're in trouble. I've had people come up to me in tears and say, I just, I just don't know. I mean, I, I'm so, I, I love the Lord so much, but I just feel like I'm such a failure. And I'm like, the fact that you still feel that is good. Praise the Lord, your heart is still toward him. And so there is something good here in the people. They are in mourning when they hear that he's not going. And so they take off their ornaments. Why? Because the Lord said, take off your ornaments. Now, get this. I, I talked about it briefly on Sunday. Ornaments here, adi in Hebrew, is jewelry. Jewelry. Jewelry at this time in the world was cultic. It was idolatrous. To wear earrings was to acknowledge other gods. And so when Aaron calls for them, have you ever wondered why, with the golden calf incident, why he only asked for their golden earrings? Tear off your golden earrings, he said. Why? Because they were idolatrous, and he's about to make an idol from them. It's not idolatrous for us now, because, you know, different culture, different time. But that was the deal at that time. And so the Lord says, and what's amazing is they're still wearing them. Even after all that's happened, even as the dust is settling and all this discipline has taken place, and the Lord says, I'm not going to go, they're still wearing their cultic earrings. Some are at least enough for the Lord to say, tell them to take them off. They, They still don't get it. And then I love how the Lord says this, have them take it off that I may know what I shall do with you. I got to think about this. I got to think about what I'm going to do. Number three, this is a compelling demand. A compelling demand. You get rid of this. You take off any vestige of anything that might put another God before me. He demands it of them. This is like dad pulling the car over to the side of the road. You know, and if you've been, if you've done that as a parent, or maybe that happened to you as a kid, I remember it vividly. My parents were taking my brother and I to Disneyland. We got halfway there. Ron and I are punching and hitting each other in the back seat. And dad pulled the car over and said, that's it. We're going home. No, no. You know, it was the discipline. And I feared my father in those moments. I'm just, well, I don't even know what to do with you. And so the Lord does it. Right now, these first six verses, he's just pulled the car over. He said, go ahead and go. I'm, I'm not going. And dismay over the possible loss of his presence. Sorrow over their sin. This pause in the journey. What's it all for? To get them back on track. Remember, God always knows what's coming. He knows he's going to go with them. You realize that? It's not that God says, I got to, you know, take off your ornaments that I may know what I shall do with you. It's not that he didn't know. It's they didn't know. They didn't know he knew. He always knows. He knew it was going to happen next year, and then he knew, knew it was up for the next 38 years, honestly. He, he knew. But he is disciplining his people. This is what a father does. And he's training them up. And so he's doing all of these things to get them back on track. That's the father's heart. How deep the father's love for us. Verse 7, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought Yahweh would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. 
It came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses, watch this, whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord, Yahweh, would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. This is not the tabernacle. Lest anybody be confused, this tent is not the tabernacle. Tabernacle wasn't even built yet. And this tent of meeting was outside the camp. The tabernacle would be smack dab in the center of camp. And there's no priesthood for this tent of meeting, and there's no sacrifice, there's no ritual pattern for its use as there would be with the tabernacle. And in fact, again, verse 8 tells us that everyone who sought the Lord, everyone who sought the Lord, where's, no, that's verse 7, would go out to the tent of meeting, which is outside the camp. So everyone who sought the Lord could go there. There was no limitation. It wasn't Levites only or high priest only. This tent was anyone could go. If you want to go worship the Lord, this is going to be the spot, tent of meeting. And finally, note that with this tent, the divine presence does not enter. He stands at the door. With the tabernacle, the Bible describes the tabernacle literally glowing because the presence of the glory of God is in the Holy of Holies. And the light shines out of that place. With this tent, God doesn't go in. He just meets Moses there. Moses is inside. God stands at the door, which is amazingly personal. You know, it's like a friend comes, drops by to borrow a cup of sugar, and you stand at the door, and you talk right there at the door. And so God's there at the door. And two things to notice about this pre-tabernacle place for worship and for prayer when Moses went in, God came down. When Moses went in, God came down. God does recognize when we gather. He does bring his presence in a way, in a way that is different than any other way. When we come to, to this tent, that he comes to the door. I believe, comes right in here with us. And, and it's so interesting. These are dynamics that are still beyond us spiritually because I know that the Lord, that his spirit indwells me, that I know his spirit comes alongside me. I know his spirit can come upon me in power. I understand all that, at least biblically, about the Holy Spirit, the living God, but there's something else when his people gather, when two or three are gathered in my name, I am there, Jesus said. Speaking about agreement, but also when we gather to worship, when we, when we come into a place, we come into this tent and the Lord comes down, he descends. Verse 11 tells us, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Now, interesting because we're about to be told that Moses can't see God. In fact, we're about to see Moses not see God as the Lord declares, you cannot see my face and live. We'll get there in just a few minutes tonight. You can't see my face and live. But here we're told that the Lord used to speak to Moses, Yahweh, this is very specifically Yahweh, used to speak to Moses face to face. Doesn't say the angel. Doesn't say the visual representation of the invisible God. It says Yahweh 
I am, which, okay, we can make the argument Jesus is I am, but the Lord spoke to him face to face, and yet we're going to be told, you cannot see my face and live. So how do we reconcile that? Well, first off, understand that face to face is a euphemism, both in Hebrew and in English. Face to face is euphemistic. I was telling our staff earlier that when Jake and I have a face-to-face conversation. We're not like right up in each other's face. That would be weird. I'd be like, bro, back it down. Get yourself a (laughs) tic-tac. Face-to-face, we understand what that means. Man, Andy, if we're going to have a face-to-face chat, that just means we're not going to be on our cell phones. We're not going to be on the other side of a wall. We're going to sit down together. We're going to get face-to-face. And that's what this is describing, face-to-face, up close and personal. In the Hebrew, it's panim el panim. Panim el panim, which means front to front, facing each other. It means before to before in Hebrew. But get this, note this. Face also means presence. In fact, jumping ahead in verse 14, God's about to say, my presence shall go with you. And presence there and face to face, same word. Panim el panim, my presence is my panim. All right, at that point, it's a singular, so my pane, my face. My face will go with you. My presence will go with you. My spirit will go. All of those three would work together synonymously that to be face to face with God is to be spirit to spirit, presence to presence. We might even say heart to heart. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6 says, he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him, I will speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Now we have no problem understanding that. When God says, I'm going to speak mouth to mouth, With Moses, he's not talking about resuscitation. He's talking about conversation. And he's talking about being up close and personal. And what the Bible is describing with Moses and God is this was the norm of their conversation. This is how closely related they were when they had conversation together. Deuteronomy 34 verse 10 says, Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And the operative word there is not face-to-face, it's new. The Lord knew him. Jesus will say someday to people who come up to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? You know what Jesus will say? Depart from me, I never knew you. It's about the knowing. It's about that close relationship. How does God speak to you? I almost erased that question when I was studying. I thought, ah, yeah, there are going to be some people who go, I don't think he speaks to me at all. Yes, he does. (laughs) I'm not asking you if God speaks to you. I'm saying, how does God speak to you? Because guess what? He speaks to every single one of you. And and I I know this because of conversations we have when you ask, how do I hear the Lord? And we start to talk, and it's been obvious you've been hearing the Lord. You know exactly what the Lord is saying. We know exactly what he's telling us to do. We know how he's relating it and how he's directing it. We know these things, but we just, oh, yeah, but I want something more concrete. I want to get mouth to mouth. (laughs) I want to be face to face. Well, listen, we can speak to him right now as personally and as intimately as Moses. 
That's what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. That's when the veil got torn down. That, that close heart to heart. You can get heart to heart with God. Face to face, mouth to mouth, spirit to spirit, presence to presence. Because when Moses came down, God went in. Man, when you go down on your knees, God's going to come in. When you welcome his spirit, he's there. That is the marvelous thing about God. That's, that's why Jesus told his disciples, it's better for you if I go away. I mean, if I was one of the 12, I would have been like, uh-uh. What are you talking about better for me if you go? No, stay right here. Jesus was right on. No, no, see, if I go away, not only will I be with Peter in Caesarea, but I'll be with Paul in Antioch. And I'll be with Philip on the road to Samaria. All at the same time. It's better for you. And that promise, don't miss how powerful that is. No prophet in all Israel arose like Moses who talked to God face to face. And now, Doug talks to God face to face. So do I. So do you. Notice also here that Joshua, good old Joshua. I love Joshua. You're going to love him more and more as we go. Joshua never left the tent. We're told in verse 11, continuing, when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, so apparently they were Catholics, <laughs> a young man, <laughs> either that or he had no parents, son of Nun. <laughs> Not sure how that worked. Anyway. Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. Even Moses left the tent. It's not the tabernacle. Remember that. It's the tent of meeting. It's the tent that they set up, a place of worship and prayer, a place of silent devotion outside of the camp, away from the hustle and bustle. And Moses would go and meet God there, and then he'd come back to his place inside the camp. Joshua never left. He just stayed right there. Joshua, come on in, have something to eat. No, no, okay, I might miss something here. <laughs> I want to be where I know God is. I remember years and years ago, the Henry Blackaby study, some of you did it, Experiencing God. There's one line from that that I've never forgotten. Well, a couple of lines, but there's one specific. Find out what God is doing and join him there. And I like that. Ask, what are you doing, Lord? That's where I want to be. And for Joshua, he knew when Moses went in, the cloud of glory descended right there. That's where Joshua wanted to be. We see why he would bear the mantle of leadership after Moses. He was, he was just a prayerful guy. He was a worshiper. And by the way, it's interesting because we've already seen ways in which Moses prefigures Jesus. You know, in Deuteronomy uh, 18, is it? Deuteronomy 18 where Moses says the Lord will raise up from among you a prophet like me. And he's talking about Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. And Moses, in many ways, as the deliverer, it prefigures. He's a type, a picture and type of, of Jesus later on. Well, so is Joshua. Yehoshua, Yeshua, Jesus. And so he continues to prefigure Christ. Even in this case, his prayerful, worshipful nearness looks just like Jesus. He doesn't want to leave the Father's presence. He doesn't do anything he doesn't see the Father doing. And that's all Jesus. John chapter 4, verse 23, hear it again. Jesus said, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I've heard some people tell me the live stream is not the same as being in person. And I get that. I understand that. I find it ironic that the same people who say that say, but have you heard the teaching of Jack Hibbs last week? What? So you, isn't that the, listen, we are spirit and truth. That's how we worship. That's how we gather. That's how our hearts connect. And whereas I love and prefer in-person fellowship, the reality is wherever, however, the worship and the word of God are being presented, you can be there in the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus. I don't care what the format is. And this has been a real paradigm shift for Pastor Rick because many of you know up until, literally up until March, and this whole COVID-19 thing and us going to the live stream and all of that taking place, many of you know this, some of you may not, that I would not live stream. Staff brought it up several times. Why don't we live stream? Nope, nope. They want to get it. They got to come here. Stupid. <laughs> kind of prideful idiot. Anyway, I... <laughs> I'm going to make them come here. They miss it. They miss it. No, no, no. And the Lord has shown me so vividly in this season. No, get the word out. Let, if, if, you know, they can't make, I was just talking with Linda about this, you know, that, that man, when the winter comes on, it gets darker and rainy and, and, you know, it's harder to see out at night and everything. You know what? If you need to stay home, okay, I'll, I will miss you not being here. But turn on. We're going to be there. And we together will worship in spirit and truth because God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That's Jesus saying this. Jesus explaining it to us. That's why Joshua didn't leave the tent. He just wanted to be where the spirit was. He wanted to be as close to God as he possibly could. Let me say this to you this way. You will be as close to the Lord as you want to be. It's that simple. You'll be as close to the Lord as you want to be. He is not the one who holds us back. He does not keep us at arm's length. We do that. And if you want to, I just want to be close to the Lord. Great, be close to the Lord. Nothing is standing in your way. Certainly no veil. There's nothing the Lord has set up that you got to somehow surmount to be with him. You'll be as close to him as you want to be. Now, what's interesting is the mention of this tent at this point sets the scene for what follows. Because Moses, though he's conversing with and hearing from God, has not gone back up the mountain yet. In fact, the implication is he was up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights to receive the tablets of the law the first time, comes down, smashes them, golden calf incident. Deuteronomy implies, if I'm reading it right, that Moses then spent 40 days and 40 nights in the camp with the people trying to figure out what to do going out to the tent of meeting, talking to God, what we're seeing so far in this chapter, 40 days and 40 nights. And then he's going to go back up the mountain as the Lord calls him for another 40 days, 40 days and 40 nights. Could have been 40 days and 40 nights done. Instead, it's going to be 120 days, 120 nights. See how quickly I did the math? So Moses is not yet back up the mountain, verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know 
whom you will send with me. <laughs> Moses, you're saying go, but who, with, with who? Who's gonna, he, already, he had told him, my malach. I'm going to send my angel. Moreover, Moses says, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I might find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. So this is how you talk to a friend. This is honest, genuine, authentic Moses sharing his heart with the Lord and the Lord's response, I just love. And he said, my presence shall go and I will give you rest. And he just answered Moses' question. Who are you gonna send with us? My presence shall go and I will give you rest. Who is this unnamed angel of whom you speak? Who are you gonna send and note this, my presence, he says, will go with you, but it is characterized by this, I will give you rest. Who said that? Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's how you'll know that I'm with you, Moses. I will give you rest. And by the way, that's how we know he's with us. We said many times that you know God is at work when peace comes. And I'm not talking about some false generated I've got it right kind of peace. I'm talking about you, you really sense the peace of the Lord. You make a decision. You stand on what he's called you to do. You know it to be right by his word. You've tested it by his word. You prayed about it and peace comes. I will give you rest. It's how you know you're walking in the presence of Jesus. His presence is restful. I have learned that this, this is, I know when I'm outside his will because I stress out and I don't sleep well and I spin out scenarios in my soul, man, and I'm not restful. Well, then I'm not paying attention to his presence. Where his presence is, there is rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Who owns that phrase? God does. Who can give you rest? Nobody but God. Which is why Jesus said it. 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us God was in Christ in the world, reconciling the world to himself. Verse 14 again, though. My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Speaks once again of the father heart of God. This has been his father heart all along. You people are down there rioting, and you're striving, and you're freaking out, and that's not what I want for you. I want you to have rest. Shabbat. I want you to know my Sabbath peace. His desire for his people. Well, Moses hears that God's going to go. My presence shall go. And it's almost like he doesn't even hear the rest part. He's just so excited. Verse 15, he says, if your presence does not go up with us, uh, do not lead us up from here. I'll go with you. Oh, go with us. I just said I'm going with you. It's like Peter in John chapter 6, verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, if you're not going, we're not going. 
And I think God loves that. I think the fact that Moses turns around and says, if you don't go with us, don't lead us. Don't, don't send us up from here. And God's like, that's right. That's the right heart. That is the right attitude. Verse 16. How then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, Moses says, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us? So that we, note this, I and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. And that is what distinguishes Israel at this time. That's the distinction. It's not because of their Hebrew heritage. It's not simply because they can draw the line back to Abraham. Hey, guess what? Today, so can the Arabs. That's not what distinguishes Israel. What distinguishes the people of God is always God. The of God part of that sentence is what makes them distinct. And it's the same thing for you and for me. Our true distinction in this world is his presence. It's not our traditions. It's not our behaviors. It's not our lingo. It's it's not our hermeneutic. It is his presence. And by the way, it's not my goodness, my faithfulness, or my righteousness that distinguishes me as a follower of Jesus Christ. Again, it is his presence. It's not my footprint that I make in this world. It's not the little empire that I determine to build. It is God with us that distinguishes us. Colossians 1.27, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what makes you different. His presence. 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. That is where you go, you smell like Jesus. That's your distinction. That's my distinction. Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. (laughs) Now, before I get to verse 18, he said, note what he said in verse 17 again, I'll do this thing of which you have spoken, for you found favor in my sight. What thing? What is the thing that he's going to do? He's already said my presence will go with you. So that's not what he's talking about. What is this thing that he says he's going to do? The thing is he's going to distinguish Israel. I'm going to distinguish Israel. I will make Israel distinct. Let me ask you, here we are 3,500 years later. Has he fulfilled that promise? (laughs) Is there any more distinctive people group in the entire history of the world but Israel? I'll distinguish them. I got you covered, Moses. But then again, Moses says, I pray you show me your glory. Glorious kavod. That weight, that heaviness in the Hebrew. And it's just another such a Peter moment to me. Moses looks a lot like Peter here. Show me your glory. You know, Lord, if it's you, call me and I want to walk out of the water to you. Moses is excited. God's going to go. God's going to distinguish his people. And in the joy of the moment, Moses goes for broke. Show me it all. And I can't help feeling that God smiled. I can't prove that, but I kind of, sensing the father's heart, he probably was like, okay. Verse 19, he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. 
and will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Which is to say God's will with everyone is perfect. Those to whom he shows grace, they needed grace. Those to whom he shows compassion, that's exactly what he knew was right for them. And it never depends on us. Grace and compassion go directly to whom God desires. It's not based on my behavior. It's based on his desire, and it's always right. And in verse 20, he said, but you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. There's only one way. There's only one way to see the actual invisible face of God. And that is you have to die. There's no other way around it. The only way to see the visible face of the invisible God, to actually see God and live, you have to die. There must be a death. Jesus said in John 14, 9, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I've been with you. We've been walking through. How come? And, and so let me ask that question. Why didn't Philip see him? How could Philip say, show us the Father? How did he not comprehend at that point? I'll tell you what, if you studied through the Gospels and you get to John 14 and you don't know that Jesus is God, you haven't studied through the Gospel. So how did they, after three years of walking with him, not see the Father in the Son? And the answer is they hadn't died yet. They were still pre-born again. They were being trained, they were being prepared, they were being led to that place, but they had yet to die. What happened that clarified the identity of Jesus to them? He died. He died, he was buried, he rose to life again so that we could too. He breathed on them, John 20, saying, receive my spirit. And then they could see God. Then they could see in the face of Christ, the face of God. And it's the same thing for you and me. How do, how do I see God and not die? Well, you have to die to see God. That's the point. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20. That's the key. Gotta die. Gotta die. But the truth is, Moses, you can't see my face and live. Moses couldn't handle the glory of God, the face of God, the actual face. We're not talking about being personal face-to-face -face, talking to each other. We're talking about seeing God. Show me your glory. My glory would crush you like a bug. No one could handle that. But the Lord offers Moses two concessions here. And they're life-giving concessions, amazing concessions. The first is... He's going to make all my goodness pass before Moses. Now just think about that for a minute. To be on the mount of God, and as well as you know God, as well as Moses knew God, but to have that opportunity to experience all his goodness just wash over you in a moment. All of his goodness go right in front. I, I, I mean, I don't even know how that, I mean, it would be breathtaking. It would be stunning. 
I can't even imagine. Oh, my goodness, the Lord said. Some of you know I'm a Seinfeld fan. I used to love the show. I've got all nine seasons. Maybe I shouldn't, but I do. And uh, <laughs> you know when that came out in the 90s? 19, 30 years ago. In the pilot episode of the show, Seinfeld, Jason Alexander's character, George Costanza, is talking with Jerry's, Seinfeld's character, Jerry Seinfeld. And they're having this conversation, and what George is doing is explaining to Jerry his neurotic lack of desire for any kind of success, <laughs> which is very characteristic of this, of this guy. And he says, I don't want to be successful, because I know that just when everything's going right, God's going to take it all away from me. Jerry says, I thought you didn't believe in God. George replies, I believe him for the bad stuff. Now see, we chuckle. And you know why that's sadly humorous? Because many people think that very thing. Oh yeah, I believe God. You know, it's an act of God when there's a hurricane, wipes people out. Tornado comes, act of God. You know, I, I believe him for the bad stuff. And what's sad to me is it is the absolute exact opposite of the truth. God gives the good stuff. In fact, every move of God is for good. Every move. Everything he does is right. Everything he does is perfect. We will say that. We will sing that. Hallelujah. Righteous and true are all your judgments, Lord. But everything he does is for good. James 1.17, every good thing given, every perfect gift it's from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Everything he does is for good. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. All he does is for good. Verse 29 of that chapter, Romans chapter 8, for those whom he foreknew, he knew ahead of time who was going to choose him, and so those he knew would choose, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn, that is Jesus, among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Doesn't that sound good? Isn't that what you want? More than anything else, to be glorified out of these rotting bodies? To, to, to be in a place where we just run free and breathe true and there is no such thing as pandemics or viruses or cancer or death or soreness in the morning in my lower back, oy vey. Just to, to be free and, I mean, everything he wants for you is good. Everything he offers me is good. And he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. And then he says, he's going to proclaim the name of Yahweh. I'm going to proclaim my name to you. Now, you might say, well, hasn't Moses heard the name Yahweh? All the way back at the burning bush, I seem to recall, he says, I am who I am, Yahweh. That's who I am. Tell them Yahweh sent you. He's heard the name over and over. He's written the name over and over. Moses knows the name of Yahweh. But now, God is going to disclose the defining characteristics of that name. What I am really means. 
what his intentions are, what his nature. This is huge. And it's so huge. Get this, because this is how we get to understand God. This is how we're going to know his ways, by knowing his name. When we know his name, when we know his nature, and that becomes the filter for our lives, then we know we have a sense about what he's doing. As a matter of fact, the best way to interpret his word is by his name. What do you mean? I mean, as you know his name, as you know his nature and his character, and you take that and then you read the word, you understand the word. You go to the word without understanding or knowing who God is, you're not going to understand the word. You look through the person of God, through the nature of God, and it all just falls into place. It makes sense. It's beautiful. But you got to know the name. This is how we know his will, by his name. Watch this. Verse 21, then the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. I have that circled in red in my Bible. It shall come about while my glory is passing by, which means he equates his glory and his goodness. While my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You shall see e achora, my back. It's that which comes hereafter. It's as in a trailing off or a lingering, that Hebrew phrase, a residual. I'm going to pass by. I'm going to cover you with my own hand. You're getting that little crack there, Moses. Hide out. I'll cover you up. I'll pass. And then as I pass, I'll lift my hand, and you're going to see my glory trailing. You can handle that, my glory trailing off. How beautiful is that? How profound. Can you just pause for one second and consider how awesome a moment this was about to be for Moses. I would have given anything to be there. And yet all things considered, I'm really glad I'm right here in these last days. But to be permitted to visibly, we're talking visibly see the trailing off of the unseen invisible God. You know what that tells us? Apparently there's some kind of glorious impact on the natural world as the supernatural God who Jesus said is spirit, passes by. As God goes by, there's going to be something that Moses sees, senses, feels, experiences in his natural man of the supernatural God. This is, this is stunning. And by the way, it's an awesome picture for us. It's, it's amazing. Again, verse 22. While my glory is passing by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. Well, we know who the rock is. We know the rock portrays pictures for us, Jesus. And the rock was Christ. God says, Isaiah 44, 8, is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. Jesus is the rock that was cleft. The word cleft, nikrot, in the Hebrew means crevice, hole, but can also be translated pierced. I want you to climb into the pierced rock. And there I'm going to cover you with my hand. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
I just, it overwhelms me. We are safe, we are secure in the pierced hands of Jesus. And we behold his glory. John said that. We have beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But we behold his glory. And as we do so, 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us something happens. In a similar way it happened to Moses, but it's happening to you and me right now. And that is we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. There is, as we sit here naturally on these chairs, perhaps in our homes, reading the word, listening to the word, worshiping the word, there's a transformation that is taking place. From glory, that is his glory, to glory, that is his glory. Don't misunderstand me on that. From glory, we are being transformed to glory. To become more like him. We will never become him. We will not be a bunch of Christ figures. We will be like him. John says, 1 John chapter 3, for we will see him as he is, but we are being transformed. This is a transformational thing happening to us. We're going to talk about that more on Sunday. I still have an entire chapter to go. Chapter 34. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered, nice going. So I added that, don't think God said that. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you. Last time Aaron and the elders went up at least partway. Not this time, nobody, not even Joshua this time. No man is to come up with you nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets, like the former ones, as Moses. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hands. In the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, I had to haul a full-size cello up and down the steep quarter-mile grade of Saddleback Drive. And I'm only sharing that for one reason. I want pity. Those were a rough three years. Southern California heat, hauling that thing, and there was no, there's no way to carry a cello. I didn't even have one of those hard cases with the handle. I had the soft case. So I had my arm around it this way. I put it on my back. I put it over here. Up and down, up and down. To school, home from school. Every single day. Exhausting poor little kid. Uphill, both ways, in the snow, carrying a cello. <laughs> Can you imagine for a moment Moses at the age of 80 hauling two stone tablets up to the top of Mount Horeb? The Mount of God. Hey. The law is a heavy thing. The law is a weighty thing. The law, while it is perfect, is a drag because you can't carry it. I can't bear it. It's too much. Romans 3.20, Paul said, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All that big dumb cello made me realize was how weak I was how heavy it was. And I come dragging in the front door. <laughs> That's what the law does. 
It points to you, it points to me and says, here's your weakness. Here's your failing. Here's where you can't bear this weight. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 tells us the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I quit the cello and learned to play the drums. Exodus 34, verse 5. So the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. He stood there with him. It means in the Hebrew that he, it means to take your stand or to present yourself. In other words, God showed up, verse 6, and then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, and, and, and just know because he already said it's what's going on here. He, Moses is in the, the pierced of the rock, the cleft of the rock, and God covers him with his hand. He passes by. He lifts his hand as he's passing by. He proclaims, verse 6, Yahweh. Yahweh El, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. And he begins again with the name. This is what the name means, Yahweh. But then he says, interestingly, he joins it with El, Yahweh El. Now we saw Yahweh Ka'elohe before, Yahweh, the Lord their God. And we've seen the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. This is not Yahweh Elohim. You would think it would be. It's not. It's Yahweh El. Remember that El is the singular form of God. Elah is at least two, and Elohim is three or more. But in this case, he calls himself Yahweh El. And what he's doing, I believe, is he's emphasizing in the absolute singular noun that there is none like him. There is, this, he is it. He is Yahweh God, the only one. You do get that, right? That while he is Father, Son, and Spirit, he is one, and he's the only one. And, and there is no professor and there's no pastor and there's no politician and there's no president that can save you. This coming election will not save you. It's important and you need to vote. And when you vote, you need to vote the Bible. You need to look at the platform of the candidates, not the candidate's character because they're both flawed. You need to look at the platform and say which one is most biblical. Which one promotes life? Which one stands for God's people, Israel? Which one, you know, because we can get really confused when we look at the human beings. It happens in church too. We can get really confused when we look at the pastors. No pastor's gonna save you. I'm not gonna do it. Don't look at me. I can barely get my cello up the hill. <laughs> only God, he is the only one. And no other name can be characterized in this way as we see Yahweh El, the only God. And he says, compassionate and gracious. Rahum Vahanum. Compassionate meaning a sympathetic mercy. And this word compassionate, rahum, is only used of God in the Bible. Never used for anybody else. Only the Lord. And he is gracious, which means showing favor. That's not yet the word grace. It's gracious. It's he shows favor rather than punishment that's deserved. 
compassionate and gracious. And then he says, slow to anger. I really wonder if he said slow to anger. <laughs> Thank God he's slow to anger. If he was not slow to anger, we'd be toast. Every one of us, we'd be done. Romans 12, 19 says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And you might say, well, that sounds pretty harsh. Has he poured out vengeance yet? Why? Because he is slow to anger. He is withholding wrath. He passed over the sins formerly committed so that Jesus could come and redemption could be offered. And he yet has waited 2,000 years. And the only reason he's waited is he's trying to save as many people as possible. He is slow to anger. The Bible says, Ephesians 4.25, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. See, that's what anger does in us. We lose it. And Satan's right there, ready to pounce and step in and make you sin. God doesn't lose it. God never flies off the handle. God doesn't discover something about you, some sin, some behavior, some failure, and just go berserk on you. He's slow to anger. We see this play out so beautifully in Jesus. Mark 11, verse 11, that says, Jesus entered Jerusalem. He came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. So get that. He came in, and he saw the mess. He saw the money changers. He saw all the corruption taking place. He looked around, and he went and spent the night on it, slept on it. And on the next day, Mark eleven fifteen says they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And I love that story because Jesus did not fly off the handle. He had a good night's sleep, had a nice breakfast perhaps, although I know he looked for a fig and there wasn't one on the tree. That's another story comes into the temple and after processing everything he acts in angry righteousness he does exactly what needs to be done because God is slow to anger he doesn't explode he abounds in loving kindness and truth the next two words chesed va'emet chesed you're going to hear a lot as we're in the Hebrew scriptures chesed is grace chesed is loving kindness that is one of the primary characteristics of God. When you hear the name Yahweh, you should think chesed because God is grace. Yes, compassionate, yes, gracious, slow to anger, but he is the epitome, the embodiment of loving kindness and truth, which still amazes me. This is something I've come back to again and again just in the last few years. Loving kindness is grace. Truth is that which is firm, established, and absolute, and, and he's both. How difficult is it to balance those two in your life? I can either be super gracious and let things go, or I can be staunch on the truth and a little harsh and legalistic. And what we tend to do is we pendulum swing, or we have a nature that is more one way than the other. People who are very gracious, but they just don't stand for the truth. People who are very solid on the truth, but you don't see an ounce of grace in them. Jesus is perfect both. God is absolute both. It's a balance. No, no.
No, it's not. It's a balance in us. We learn to balance grace and truth. With God, it is no balance. It's who he is, 100%. He's not truth and grace and truth. He's grace and truth. Immediate, at the same time, perfectly. You're gonna see these two words coupled, loving kindness and truth. You're gonna see them coupled 20 times before we even get to the New Testament. Describing God, loving kindness and truth. And when we get to the New Testament, anyone want to take a guess how many times we see it there? Go ahead, guess. Who thinks 10? You're not even going to try, are you? (laughs) Who thinks 7? Ah, see, I guess from 7, yeah. No, we just see it twice. (laughs) We see it over and over 20 times. Loving kindness and truth, loving kindness and truth. Oh, this is the nature of God. This is the name of God. He is loving kindness and truth. And then we get to the New Testament. We don't even see it until John writes his gospel. The two words together. Oh, we see grace all over the place and we see truth. But the two of them together, we don't see but two times. You know why? Because Jesus is the perfect personification of chesed Amet. He is grace and truth. You only have to say it once or twice. The rest of the time, all you got to do is look at Jesus. Because every time you see Jesus, every scenario, every situation, every interaction he has with people, you are seeing grace and truth perfectly played out. John said in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Show me your glory. We saw his glory. Not the back. Not the trailing off, not the residual or the afterglow. No, we saw his glory. John says, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses. Remember, he's lugging it up the mountain, lugs it back down. But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And verse 7, read that again. Speaking again of the name, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. And it doesn't say this, but it is implicit in the context. Thousands of generations, not thousands of people. He keeps loving kindness, chesed, grace, for thousands of generations. On and on and on he goes. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Which is another way to say sin in all its form. He will forgive. Yet, He will by no means leave unpunished. By the way, the word the guilty is not there. He will by no means leave unpunished. That is, sin must be punished. Sin will be punished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And that's exactly what happens. Think about that. That's how it works. The father sins and it gets on the kids. Right? So, God visits that. Visits the person who has been sinned against is another way to put it. That's grace. God comes to the one who's been sinned against and every one of us have been. Love you, dad. But every one of us, (laughs) I think about my mom and dad. I've told you before, I, I I have two stellar parents. I was raised, I believe I was raised very well. Did my mother, did my father ever sin against me? Of course they did. Did I ever sin? Have I ever sinned? Will I again sin against my kids? You better believe it. And God's going to visit that. And he's not going to leave unpunished the sin that is then 
propagated again and again and again and again. Listen to me. Sin is easily passed along. Children growing up in, in addictive, abusive, or just rebellious environments, they're going to pick it up. They're going to try it on for size. They're going to, some will wear it. And don't get me wrong, children come hardwired to be sinners. They do. doesn't take long either for they're crying and waking you up in the middle of the night just because they're so hungry. <laughs> but that sin nature, listen, and parents especially, we got to learn from this, the sin nature that is inherent in us is either going to be cultivated by the parents or it's going to be challenged by the parents. We can go either way. What's amazing is that God comes to every generation. He just keeps showing up. He keeps showing up. He keeps showing up. Are you going to keep doing the same dumb thing that dad did, that mom did? Or is this going to be the generation that's different? And you know what's remarkable to me is the cross-generational power of sin can be broken. It can be stopped in its tracks. It can be killed dead by the power of the blood of Christ. That's why he comes to every generation to bring the blood of Christ and say, are you willing? Do you want this? Do you understand that the cycle of sin in your family can be crushed and cut off? That the dysfunction of depravity can be defeated in your generation, in my generation? Wow, by the blood of Jesus, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. I love that old hymn. I used to sing that full-voiced, and I didn't have a clue what it meant. There is power in the precious blood of the Lamb. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were born with a sin nature, you picked up the sin from your parents, and you died. That was it. And when you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, Paul says, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, oh, how deep the Father's love for us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. And in verse 13 of Ephesians 2, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Every generation has the same opportunity to have sin crushed, stopped in its tracks, and washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't have to do what the previous generation did. That's powerful. And get this again, that God keeps chesed for thousands of generations while only punishing the sin of the third to the fourth. He's going to punish sin. But note the contrast. He so much more would rather pour out his grace on the thousands because grace far outweighs sin. Grace washes sin right off the plate. Sin's committed against me and sin's committed by me. Because there's power in the blood. Verse 8, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and to worship. And brothers and sisters, the more I see 
his grace and truth. The more I hear his name, the more I recognize the nature of God as described here. And this, by the way, is the most vital description of the nature and character traits of God in the entire Hebrew scriptures. And as I said before, Jesus emulates all of this in the New Testament. But in the Older Testament, verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, every follower of Jesus should memorize these two verses. This is God. So when you say, God, how come you did this? Stop and go, wait a minute, who is he? Go back to who he is. His perfect self-declaration will give you explanation. Sometimes we want to blame God for the bad stuff, like George Costanza. Now, I believe him for the bad stuff. Well, then you haven't read Exodus 34, 6, and 7. You go back to these character traits again, and this is who he is. And if I see him in any other light, I don't understand him. I am misunderstanding what he's doing. And when I read the word, if there's something that seems out of sorts, I go back to this again. He is the Lord, the Lord God, the only one, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations. That's who he is. And when I know that, it recasts everything in the scripture It recasts everything in my life to his perfect will and purposes. Now I get it. Oh, oh, that's God. That's his name. Sorry to harp on this, but man, the more I see his grace and truth, the more like Moses in verse 8, I have to fall down and worship him. The more I must bow and acknowledge he is God and there is no other. Verse 9, he said, Moses said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst. (laughs) Moses isn't going to let this one go. Even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. He says three things. Upon hearing the name and the nature of God, this self-declaration of the Lord, of Yahweh, Moses is emboldened to make three Please, he says, number one, give us your presence, God's presence. Go with us, go with us. He pleads the presence again, which he's already done multiple times. He pleads again the presence of God. Go with us. Secondly, he asked for God's pardon. Please forgive us. We need your presence, but we've got to have your pardon. And finally, he asked that they would be God's possession. Make us your own. Take us as your own presence, pardon, possession in one two-verse prayer, which tells you prayer doesn't have to be long to be significant. (laughs) Pray the heart. And so he says this, and watch how the Lord responds, and buckle up. Here we go, verse 10. Then God said, behold, I am going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite from before you, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, 
and the Hivite and the Jebusite. You could add the Megabyte and the Gigabyte and the Flashlight and all the ites. Driving them out. <laughs> Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going. Or it will become a snare in your midst. And hint, hint, it will. Because they will. Joshua's going to make a covenant because these people seem like covenant worthy. And it's going to come back to bite them. That's for a later study. But rather, verse 13, God says, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. I pointed this out before, but I'll point it out again. This, this word jealous is kana in Hebrew, and it is only ever used to describe God. So this is not like human jealousy as we think of it. This is a word subscribed specifically to God, Kana, and while we see it translate jealous here, it's zealous. This is, God is zealous for his people. The same exact word, Kana, is used in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where it says the zealousness of the Lord will perform this, will complete this. Talking about the government being on his shoulders unto us, a child has been given, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And that word is kana, the zealousness of God for his people. I am a zealous God, you could say. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And play the harlot is a perfect picture because God sees this relationship as conjugal, as marital. He will refer to Israel as his wife, even as the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. There is a marrying taking place. And if you go off and worship other gods, it's like going off to see a whore. God says, don't do that. I can't believe you used the word, Rick. Neither can I. Reading on. Someone might invite you to eat of a sacrifice. Verse 16. It's all the same word anyway, isn't it? Verse 16. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. And the tragedy of this is by the time we get to David's son Solomon, at the end of Solomon's life, he departs from faithfulness to the Lord because of all his wives and their gods. To the point that you get to the end of wise old Solomon, and you have to wonder, was he even saved at the time of his death? It's one of the true amazing ironies of Scripture that you can read the book of Daniel and have a sense that Nebuchadnezzar ends up saved. But Solomon may not. And I'm not making that judgment. I'm just saying his wives did exactly what God warned against. They drew him away from God because they all had their gods. And so Solomon began to follow after in that same way. And we'll see that be a major downfall for Israel all the way until Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon destroys Jerusalem and takes the people captive. Verse 17, you shall make for yourself no molten gods. Cows are right out. <laughs> you shall not do this, he says. Verse 18, you shall observe, and he's going to list out three feasts. Number one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the springtime. That begins with Passover and goes right through the week of unleavened bread. You shall observe this. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. We always already studied that. At the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. He says, the first offspring from every womb belongs to me. 
We already studied that as well. All your male livestock, the first offspring from cattle and sheep, you shall redeem with a lamb. First, first offspring from a donkey, if you do not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Well, that seems harsh. We already studied that, so go back and look it up and study that again. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons. None shall appear before me empty-handed. I love that. And again, he said all this before. We've studied all this before. But when he says, none shall appear before me empty-handed, you know what? You've got something to bring. You've got something to bring. Bring it. Whatever it is that you have, bring it to the Lord. It may not seem like much. It may be, I don't know, a couple of fish and some loaves. You know what he can do with it. Just bring what you've got. Don't appear before him empty-handed. Verse 21, you shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest, you shall rest. So in your busy season, I'm so busy right now, going to church on a Sunday is just not an option. Really? You shall celebrate, verse 22, second feast, the Feast of Weeks. This is Shavuot. We call it also Pentecost. That is the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the turn of the year. That's Sukkot. Then he puts it all together, verse 23, three times a year all your males are to appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. So there were seven feasts that we'll get into in later studies, Lord willing, but three of them required all male Jews to go up to Jerusalem once a year. Three times a year. This is God's way of drawing his people back home three times every single year. And then verse 24, for I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your borders and no man shall covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the sacrifice of the feast of Passover to be left over until morning. And he's just, he's summing up here. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. And I, I, I challenge you as I challenge myself, do we? Do we bring the first fruits? Or do we wait until all the bills are paid and see if there's something left over? Do we give him the best and the first? And then he adds, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And that becomes the no cheeseburger mentality of Jews all over the world today. And it's all because of that verse. And the whole reason God says don't do that is it was cultic practice. It was pagan sacrifice. It was a fertility rite. And God says, don't do what they do. And this is one of the big ones. Just don't do that. Verse 27, then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord, 40 days and 40 nights. And he did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the 10 commandments. We'll stop there for tonight. But note this, that back in verse 1, the Lord said, I will write on the tablets. Some of you may recall on Sunday I made mention that he wrote on the first tablets but not on the second ones. And I'm going to make a correction. I can't be clear on that. I can't be certain. It looks like he did write on the second ones. But it also looks like Moses wrote on the second ones. It's hard to determine and so it's not a salvation issue so we're just going to kind of leave it at that but Moses does later confirm some of the writing done by God I mean right here we see Moses writing God says to Moses write down the words on the tablet so he's, he's 
chiseling away. But Deuteronomy 10 verse 4 says, he, that is God, wrote on the tablets. Like the former writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me, Moses says. So as Moses recounts this now in Deuteronomy, which would be some 37, 38 years later, he says, yeah, no, God wrote the second tablets as well, and, and then he brought them down and put them in the Ark of the Covenant. But here, as we conclude, the Lord said to Moses, write down these words. So who's doing the writing? And apparently, God wrote at least the Ten Commandments, and then Moses chiseled in the rest, maybe? It was a combined effort. But what's interesting to me here is that Moses was so captivated by the word of God over these 40 days and 40 nights, he didn't even stop for a Scooby snack. He didn't have bread. He didn't have water. Well, he had the bread of the word. He was in the water of the presence of the spirit of God himself. And for 40 days and nights, we see a Moses absolutely captivated by the spirit and the word of God. Are you? Are we captivated by the spirit and the word? Amos the prophet said, chapter eight, verse 11, behold, days are coming. Linda and I were just talking about this. Days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to shining sea. I added shining. And from the north even to the east, they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and they will not find it. Why won't they find it? Because pastors aren't preaching it. And I think it's going to be one of the heaviest judgments to fall on the household of God that churches are not teaching through the word. Now we got so much else to do. Preach the word, Timothy. Paul said, preach the word in season and out of season. Preach the word. Be in the word. Feed on the word. 40 days and 40 nights, nothing but the word and the presence, the spirit of God. That's all Moses needed. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But let me end with this question. Why, after revealing his compassion and his graciousness, his slowness to anger, his loving kindness, and his truth, why then, after that glorious moment, in the rest of the chapter, God goes straight to the law of requirements and expectations for Israel. Did you catch that contrast? We come from grace right into law. Why does he do it? Because every good father teaches his children discipline. Every good father knows his children need direction and correction. Proverbs 3.11, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. And after laying into that lazy, lackadaisical, lethargic, lukewarm church of Laodicea, Jesus lovingly says, Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Isn't it good to be disciplined? 
by a loving God. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. Let's pray. Jesus, your grace and your truth is so overwhelming, so profound, so amazing that we recognize this is the sum total of all your goodness passing before us. We see that there is none like you. I, I'm not. I try, want to be, I'm not. None can replace you. None has shown such consistent goodness throughout all of history to mankind. And we praise you in your goodness. Father, you are good. You are wholly good. And I pray that you will help us to begin to rethink, perhaps if we need to, Lord, to rethink how we view your word, how we view the circumstances of our lives, how we view this world. May we look, Father, rather than through our own experience, may we look through the name of Yahweh, the, the nature of our God. Help us to read things through your character, Father. And discipline us, Lord, because we need it. And we thank you that you consider us children who you love enough to discipline. Help us to see what you're doing and to obey, I pray in Jesus' name.